In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London. And I'm Colm O'Mungain, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and here in Dublin. At 11pm on December 31st, Brexit finally happened for real. And in typical cliff-edge style, it came just one week after an agonising last gasp deal was struck on Christmas Eve. We'll look at how that deal was done, what ground was gained and lost, and how the critical stumbling blocks of the level playing field, fisheries and governance were finally and dramatically resolved. And we'll assess how it's all going so far. The volume of heavy goods vehicles heading over to Dover or Calais may have been down dramatically because of pre-Christmas stockpiling and the Covid effect, so the full impact may not yet have been fully felt. We'll look at that and some of the other examples of where Brexit was already beginning to bite. But first... For this first episode of Brexit Republic for the new year, and indeed the first one since the deal was done, what's been going on, Sean, in the southeast of the country you're living in? COVID is the the big one, uh, of course. I mean, in terms of the border with the EU uh, on the short straits, not a lot has been happening. And there's been a bit of taunting from uh, pro-Brexit people saying, where's all this chaos everybody was predicting? Well, it depended on who you were talking about making those predictions. Uh, Certainly a couple of weeks back when we were down in Dover, Uh, In early December, we were being told by the freight forwarding people down there, listen, there ain't going to be much happening for the first week or two uh, around Dover Port. It's always a quiet time of year. Uh, And then a lot of truckers are going to wait and see how the borders are operating before they risk putting their trucks from uh, mainland Europe into the UK to see if they can get back out again. Uh, Essentially, that will be a test of the French customs uh, facilities because the British aren't really applying customs now they're say they're going to phase it in slowly slowly between now and july Uh, so any customs checks or delays would effectively be because of what the eu borders will be imposing both at calais and also at dublin port they would be seen as the two main pinch points for what would happen and so far so good but it's really because the amount of traffic moving has been very very slow on the first of january day one of Brexit, proper full Brexit, there were 450 of these Kent access permits issued. These are the electronic permits that trucks need to get before they're allowed to enter the county of Kent, at the far end of which is situated Dover and the Channel Tunnel entrance. And that's effectively a checklist of all the other customs documentation uh, that you need to go through the, the frontier. They issued 450 on day one. Now, on a normal day, you'd have about 5,000 trucks heading for those channel entrances. So you can see really that the level of freight moving was very, very low, a tenth of its normal level of of volume. And of course, there was a lot of pre-stocking had been going on before 
the Christmas period and before this Brexit transition period. And there's no point in bringing more goods into a country where the warehouses are pretty much full at the moment anyway. So it's really going to be from next week onwards and probably the week after that we start to see the freight volumes really pick up to a level that will stretch and stress the systems that have been put in place. Well, we are seeing a bit of it already. I mean, we've heard Dublin Port, their manufacturing Northern Ireland, I think, was saying it's diverting trucks away from Dublin Port because they don't want to incur the bother of going west-east across the Irish Sea. There was a discussion on earlier on RT Radio where revenue commissioners, hauliers and the food and drink industry were talking about snarl-ups along the way with revenue and uh, the customs division of revenue here temporarily suspending a form of security check to allow a greater flow of traffic. So we're beginning to see it. Will we just see this amplified then over the coming weeks? Or is there the time really to sort out what needs to be sorted out? Or is that just too complex to sort out in a short space of time? Well, it has to be sorted out. And this is the, the, the great challenge of Brexit is sorting out these new rules and arrangements and finding out what works and what doesn't work and getting people used to the new regime that has cut in since the 1st of January. And yes, I mean, my answer was initially all about what has been happening here in southeast of uh, England as the kind of choke point of, of uh, Brexit-related trade. Certainly, we have been starting to see or uh, hearing reports, rather, of uh, problems in Ireland because of the way that th- these new arrangements impact on companies exporting goods into Ireland. And this is where all the things that we've been talking about for months, if not years now, on this podcast about supply chains, about customs arrangements, about rules of origin, all of these things are starting to manifest themselves now. And we're seeing reports now of videos of empty shelves or partially stocked shelves in Marks and Spencer's supermarkets in Dublin. Uh, Also reports from Paris, uh, similarly, of the Marks and Spencer store there not carrying the normal range of food products that it would uh, carry. And there's problems there because of re-exporting materials. If they're exporting food products from the UK into the EU, it comes with a whole bunch of new rules and regulations now, these SPS checks that we've talked about before. More complicated still is if they are incorporating products that are made in other European Union countries or are onwardly shipping products from other well, European let's, countries. Let's Stuff that might have arrived of, of in, pin- in a warehouse in Britain from mainland Europe and then to be transported on part of a partload onto Ireland. There are new rules affecting that and the decision by some of the supermarkets at least seems to be we can't do this. So there's a lot of confusion about what the actual rules are and whether they can export and import as easily as they did in the past. Right. One of the examples of seeing, as you mentioned, Marks and Spencer's there, it turns out Percy the Pig is a, is a pink schwein and this is causing problems. This is causing problems, and, and the, the kinder of Ireland may be greatly distressed about them. It seems uh, Percy Pig uh, is actually made in Germany. Right. But when he comes into the UK, it's fine. It's an import in from the EU into the UK. However, if he's then re-exported from the UK to uh, Ireland, i.e. back into the EU, 
there's an issue about rules of origin there, about whether he is actually a, a British product or not. Mm. So this is causing confusion. And so Percy is being kept in the warehouse and not passed on to Ireland. The Irish children may be deprived of their little pink friend. Right, Tony, uh, yeah, a, I mean, a British in institution this, yeah, with the, German roots. Any other examples? This um, whole rules of origin question is needs a bit of explanation because people who were sitting down to their Christmas dinner or Christmas Eve dinner as I was doing because I've been thoroughly Europeanized here in Brussels having my Christmas dinner on the 24th. People assumed that the treaty meant zero tariffs and zero quotas and of course it does. So why then should food coming from say the Netherlands to Ireland via a UK warehouse, why should that suffer a tariff when it arrives in Dublin? And this is a really intriguing anomaly of trade and rules of origin and it it means essentially that the more you process a product in the UK the more it avails of tariff-free trade ironically paradoxically but if you're sending something that is already fully produced like say Mars bars or something in then from the Netherlands and it goes to a warehouse in the UK because traditionally Ireland and the UK were seen as one market for certain food products coming from the continent because of consumer tastes and you know we we all remember the difference between a Raider and a Twix so there was this cultural homogeneity between Ireland and the UK dare I say it when it came to chocolate bars but nowadays if you send the stuff in and it gets reboxed somewhere in a depot in the UK in in Great Britain and then spun out again to Ireland, to Dublin or to Belfast, lo and behold, it has lost its EU origin status. So therefore, it is seen as a third country good and it is subject to a tariff. And as we know, tariffs on food tend to be quite nasty. And this was revealed to members of the retail industry in the UK in a phone call to DEFRA, the UK Agriculture Department, around the 27th of December, just a couple of days before all this took effect. And they were stunned to find out that the supply chains that they had relied on simply wouldn't work anymore, even if you had a zero tariff, zero quota arrangement. Again, just to reinforce this, even if the good is simply reboxed in a depot in Birmingham, it loses its EU status. Right. Even if this is an EU product coming from the Netherlands and destined for another EU country, Ireland, Dublin or Belfast, which is, as we know, operating under EU rules, it has still lost that EU origin status and so a tariff has to apply. Now, there have been inquiries by Irish officials to the European Commission about this and the Commission's answer is quite simple. Uh, Brexit means Brexit. These supply chains and integrated systems only worked because everybody was in the EU single market. Everybody followed the same rules. So you could have these warehouses in the UK that stocked mountains of cheese or wine or chocolate or whatever that could then be spun out to Tesco's or Marks and Spencer's at a moment's notice. That only worked because everybody was in the single market. Now that the UK is out of the single market, that simply doesn't work anymore. So Irish consumers will either see those products becoming a lot more expensive or simply disappearing from shelves. Now, there is a long-term solution to this. Those distribution hubs in the UK will simply have to move to perhaps the Midlands of Ireland. But that's a a five-year project. 
and that costs money and capital. So this is a real surprise that people were not anticipating. Right. How did this become a surprise? How was this not seen? Is this because of the rushed fashion in which the latter part of this was all put together? Or was it known on the European side that this was going to be the case? It just because of the absence of scrutiny it didn't really come to the public attention. Probably a bit of that. Now, this this did come up in the negotiations and the UK was pressing for maximum pragmatism and flexibility for those that warehousing effect to continue. And the, the European Commission was adamant that it couldn't continue because they're saying... You know, for those supply chains to work, everybody has to be in the single market. You know, we're not going to outsource that value chain to a third country. But at the same time, the signals from the negotiations were that there would be cumulation so that if you got a, if you had a chocolate bar that needed peanuts from the Netherlands or wherever, Mm. that processing could happen in, in in a British city and those goods would avail of tariff-free preferential access because cumulation or rules of origin, if it's stitched into the deal, it means you can process stuff from the EU in a British factory and it can then be called a British product and then sold back into the EU. And that works both ways. But here, because it's not being processed, it's only being repackaged or reboxed or stored for a while. It doesn't have that. And it's been described to me by somebody in the industry as saying it's like a stateless person. You know, once you put it into this warehouse, it loses its EU origin status and it becomes like a stateless person, a stateless good. So it, it is then subject to the full whack of, of tariffs. Sean? But I also suspect there's a, a, an element of just denial about the whole process that a lot of companies were just going along hoping for the best that a lot of these things that have been talked about that were flagged up beforehand uh, as Tony has said but they wouldn't happen that at the end of the day a deal will be done and basically everything would carry on pretty much as usual and I think that mentality was was encapsulated for me going right back to before the Brexit referendum one of the most ludicrous phrases that was bandied around in, in Irish business circles was this old Brexit thing it'll be like the Y2K bug a load of old talk and then nothing will happen well obviously and that, I think that, that attitude mentality has persisted, persisted. well it, it has, has because persisted. Linda Slattery from the Revenue Commissioner's Customs Division was out speaking on RT Radio to our colleague Brian Dobson earlier and she was saying that there has been a massive amount of denial and she that businesses, actually including multinationals, simply are not prepared. That revenue has processed thousands of declarations, but there's still a large volume of businesses that aren't prepared. And by way of being positive, she cited a statistic saying two thirds of freight moved freely getting a green light through. I think she mentioned Ross Lair. Well, that still suggests a third of it didn't. And the volumes are pretty low at the moment. So a third at the moment isn't much. But in a few weeks time, it's going to be a hell of a lot more. Yes, it is going to be a lot more. And again, the revenue, to be fair to them, and uh, hey, they're the taxmen yeah, after all. It's not to try. Uh, so let, let's let's try and be fair to them. Uh, but no, they have been plugging away at this for years. Uh, and I mean, literally years saying these are things that companies need to be prepared for and be aware of the taxation implications, the form filling that has to go on, the registration for AORI numbers, uh, for importing goods uh, from the UK. All of that, they have been literally plugging away for years. They've had to make major investments in their own computer systems. All that information has been published in the annual budgets from the Irish government. So this stuff has been coming down the tracks on the government side. 
they've been aware of it. They've been advertising on the radio and in newspapers to convince companies, but people just didn't move. I mean, you can lead the horse to water and all that, but it is up to the businesses to have made their own preparations for this. Well, I think going... Uh, Going back yeah, to what Tony was saying, that, that a sense developed while the talks were going on and people began to speculate that there was definitely going to be a deal, that Revenue had said, well, look, even if there is going to be a deal, there will still be issues by virtue of the UK being outside the single market. But that didn't seem to sink in. Yeah, and the customs union, Theresa May have said, we're leaving the, the customs union, we're leaving the, the single market. That immediately meant you had to do customs. And so there was a yeah. whole chain of events should have started working then. First of all, securing customs agents, private sector customs agents, to do a lot of the paperwork for you and to help out the freight forwarding side of things and start training more people and recruiting more people to do that kind of work. But again, a lot of companies were just hoping for the best, I think, putting off, making commitments in time and money to put behind what was needed. Plus, the COVID did not help. Let's let's be fair to the businesses as well. It suddenly became an issue of, do I spend a lot of my time on this hopefully theoretical business of tariffs and taxes and customs and all that, or do I attend the immediate business of trying to keep my business alive and keep my employees employed right in the here and now and worry about the other stuff when it, when it actually arrives, which is a, a, a very reasonable uh, view to take but it has arrived now all of this form filling all of this paperwork is actually here right now and now it's Mm. hitting home to an awful lot of people even uh, speaking from personal experience my my first brexit hit was we had been watching the night manager on amazon prime before christmas and we're kind of getting to the cliff edge last couple of episodes but suddenly we discovered in because i live in brussels we were geo-blocked from the 1st of January because of Brexit, because the ability to, to, to migrate your your membership or your subscription on, on a, a broadcaster like Amazon Prime, that is tied to EU membership, the, this, this ability to you know, move around with your subscription. Once Brexit happened, we were geo-blocked from watching the last two vital episodes of The Night Manager. So we're sitting there completely uh, on tenterhooks, not knowing what happened. Right. So uh, I, I don't know. So, and signing uh, up for Amazon.de. Well, that, you can do that, but you, you know, it's it's not clear that the night manager will be uh, available on Amazon.de, or if we'll have to watch it in German, which would be you know another challenge. But yeah, mm. these are the real real world consequences of Brexit that are starting to hit home. Right. Well, well hopefully you get to those last two episodes and have a bag of Percy Pigs to, to enjoy <laughs> as you watch exactly. as you watch der, der Nacht Manager. <laughs> Tony, seeing as you mentioned Christmas Eve and the Brexit deal and all being European, what, what did you have? What was the dinner on? What is the traditional dinner on Christmas Eve in Brussels? Well, it, it depends on where you're from. And, and because I'm, I'm a classic expat living in Brussels and my wife is Danish, then we, we had endless rows about whether we'd have the dinner on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day and when would the presents be given, especially since this was meant to be an Irish Christmas for us. But because of the COVID restrictions, we decided to stay in Brussels, which was probably the right thing to do, given that the, the deal wasn't done until Christmas Eve. So on Christmas Eve, Eve morning, I was busy peeling potatoes and, and making curried parsnip soup while fielding numerous calls about the, the deal. When was it going to be done? Was it going to be done today? I was trying to contact various sources to see what was happening. So it was a, a pretty fraught and torrid day trying to manage everything. And then speaking to 
certain number of diplomats early in the afternoon. I got the clear impression that it wouldn't be done that day at all because, as you'll recall, on the the evening of the 23rd, everything was set up for a statement by Ursula von der Leyen, the Commission President, and by Boris Johnson in London to say that the deal was done. But then those statements were abruptly cancelled and we sat and waited and nothing came. Do we know that why? night or overnight. At this well, stage? We, we know that the reason why was that the final jigsaw piece was, was fisheries. It appears that Ursula von der Leyen and Boris Johnson had worked in tandem very closely along with Stephanie Rizzo on the on the EU side and David Frost, the UK chief negotiator, to get an overarching deal on fisheries, which they got at great sufferance and pain right. on Which on nobody all is sides, now happy with. Which oh. nobody is, is happy with. I mean, you know, I think when you start to break down the deal on fisheries, even though it's it's bad for European fleets and it's especially bad for Ireland because the UK has laid claim to a much higher quota of mackerel, which is the, the most valuable quota for Irish fishermen. Overall, the UK really didn't get what it set out to get on fisheries. And we've ended up with a situation where 25% of the value of the fish that EU boats catch in UK waters will be passed over to the UK. That's going to be worth about £140 million. But the UK, after all, was looking for 80% at the very start. And the French boats in particular will still have access to the 6 to 12 mile limit, which is very valuable to them. We have a five and a half year phase in periods. The UK wanted three years. The UK was talking about this idea of zonal attachment that didn't get across the line. At the end of the five and a half years, I mean, roughly speaking, if the UK tries to take more of the quota, there will be consequences in terms of market access for their fisheries the EU will be entitled to impose tariffs on fisheries. And if there's a, a dramatic breakdown in relations over access for European boats, then the EU can take action on trade and aviation as well. So I think ultimately it, it was a success story for Michel Barnier in, in keeping that link between fisheries and the overall trading arrangement. And even though you know Irish fishermen are going to be very sore at what's happened and they will lose out, it could have been a lot worse. Right. Press conference statements postponed on the 23rd. We roll into the 24th. You're peeling potatoes and looking at curried parsnip soup and your day is beginning to resemble Ray Liotta's in the last scenes of Goodfellas where he has to drop the gun silencers off and mm. deliver cocaine onto an aeroplane. Not forgetting the new clients he'd got in Atlanta. No, that's true. Um, but then then at about four o'clock, quarter to four, it was announced there would be a statement or actually a press conference by Ursula von der Leyen and Michel Barnier. So that's when we, when we knew that things had been happening. And yeah, to, to finish the story about the fish, having reached that high-level agreement, basically both sides had to go through about 80 fish stocks line by line to work out what quota went where. I mean, 25% is just the global figure. You have to figure out what kinds of fish does the UK want higher quota on. And, you know, this you get into an extremely complicated field of fisheries management because 25% is the value of the fish. And, of course, fish values are not entirely static things. I mean, they depend on a an aggregate figure that is based on global fish markets around the world. So, you know, this went on and I was told that at two o'clock on Christmas Eve in the afternoon, the UK marched in and said they wanted more mackerel and Ursula von der Leyen said, no, that's it. That's the deal. Take it or leave it. They took it. Then at quarter to four Brussels time, they announced the deal. The deal was done.
How was it on your side of the water, Sean? Because you freezing. stayed in the UK for Christmas. Absolutely for this. freezing is, is my memories of, of that period because whilst Tony was doing his Rayliotta and cooking the, the parsnips or whatever, the rest of us were out having snagged and bagged our prime slots in Downing Street to go live for the announcements on the 23rd. The press conference that was supposed to take place at 7 o'clock, then 8 o'clock, then 9 o'clock, then cancelled for the night. Basically, we spent four hours standing on a street in London in late December, freezing, and then came back on the Saturday pretty much to do the same. Although, because of the way bulletins fell for RTE, I was able to time it a little bit better, but uh, other people there were, were gone close to insane from the cold. Uh, One thing you need to understand about Downing Street, it is one of the coldest places in London. I mean, physically, the street um, for the the wretched hacks like myself. What is it, a bit of a wind tunnel, is it? It is a wind tunnel. It it stretches right down, (laughs) even though it's a very short street, uh, and it comes out uh, on Whitehall at the end. Right across, directly across from it, there's a gap uh, at the Defence Ministry and another ministry that takes leads right down to the river. So you get this wonderful view of the London Eye there. The problem is any drafty wind blowing up eastwards from uh, the, along the River Thames seems to want to do a handbrake turn and go 90 degrees straight up Downing Street, freezing everybody in there. Plus the building, because of its axis, it's the side where the press all stand, the camera people, it's always in the shade. So even in the summer, it's cold. In the winter, it's cold. Cold. on a breezy day it's extremely cold it's and it's also a dangerous breezy if you're day a pigeon, I, I see sean uh, very dangerous larry the cat uh, the photographer's friend the most photographed feline on planet earth uh, nabbed uh, a pigeon that pigeon standing just centimeters from the third leg of the rte tripod that'll tell you how well positioned we were uh, on the day but uh, larry uh, was straight in on there he, I, the previous night he'd come sniffing around all our gear, making sure that uh, RT was um, kosher and sound and in every possible <laughs> Checked uh, your conceivable press card. way. Uh, Check the press card and all that. Anything that the uh, coppers on the gate with their airport security uh, for getting you in and out of the place uh, had neglected to do, Larry was on it uh, straight away. Fear not there. But yeah, it was a cold, cold uh, time waiting around for these people to finish counting their fish Uh, overnight in Brussels. One thing I'd I'd like to ask you, Tony, though, about is uh, the role of Michel Barnier in that uh, final couple of days, because the British newspapers were heavily briefed that Barnier had been sidelined in that final phase of negotiations and that von der Leyen and her uh, minion, as they were reporting it, uh, Stephanie Riso, had taken over the whole thing and they were the ones who were going through it. And uh, Monsieur Barnier, who we should mention, it's uh, his birthday today, Friday. Happy birthday, uh, Michel. 70 Happy today, birthday. statutory retirement age for retire, all yeah. new officials. Right. Uh, but uh, yes, the, the, the British media are quite emphatic uh, and a little nasty, I thought, in saying that he'd been sidelined, um, and some of them suggesting on orders from Berlin. Uh, to get a deal done. Uh, any uh, rumour in that truth there, Tony? Well, I, I think I think it is true, but I mean, the same would apply to David Frost. I mean, if Michel Barnier was sidelined, then David Frost was also sidelined because effectively Ursula von der Leyen, the commission president, did take a much more central role in the negotiations and she was working directly with Boris Johnson uh, and you know, naturally, it was always going to go to that higher political level in the final throes of the negotiations. And when it came to 
negotiating on fisheries in those final 48 hours. Obviously, as the numbers started to shift, the Commission President uh, and Stephanie Rizzo, who is Ursula von der Leyen's chief Brexit um, advisor, um, they were having to talk to capitals to see what the margin of manoeuvre was, but they weren't talking to fisheries ministers. They were talking to the Sherpas, the, as you know, Sean, the, the advisors to uh, the prime ministers who work, who cooperate at EU level when it comes up to a summit. So this was all being done at the highest political level. So yes, to an extent, uh, Michel Barnier was um, edged to one side, but the logic of that would suggest that David Frost was also edged to one side and this was being handled by Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen. And, uh, I mean, I think and von not der Leyen by Angela Merkel higher. and Emmanuel Macron, as has been well, widely I, speculated for, as well in the British media. Yeah, well, I, I would definitely say, and I've heard this uh, from a number of sources, um, Emmanuel Macron said that 25% and no further so that was the the red line for him and he was not budging and as a result the eu didn't budge and ursula von der leyen who i'm told would have gone higher than 25 percent uh, stuck to that figure uh, so that's 25 percent of the of the value of the fish caught by european boats in british water that was as far as they were prepared to go and speaking of of people who had to continue working over the christmas spare a thought for the ambassadors michel barnier then had to brief the ambassadors on christmas day itself yeah so the whole procedural follow-up had to had to be shoehorned into a few days where it would normally take weeks um, and as we reported before the European Parliament had already said that they were not going to ratify this treaty ahead of the 31st of December because they didn't have time. So the ambassadors had to come in on Christmas Day and give a, a written uh, approval of the, first of all, that the treaty would be applied provisionally from the 1st of January. Um, and then there were further meetings of ambassadors to make sure that the treaty was then approved by member states uh, and could then come into effect on the 1st of uh, January. But of course, the European Parliament still has to ratify the treaty. So that's, again, retroactive scrutiny, which nobody likes, but that's the, that's the way it's going to be. It has been slightly ratified in Westminster, Sean, hasn't it? Yeah, I was going to say, slightly better situation for the European Parliament, which looks like it's, it's not going to ratify till March now, but at least they're going to have time to look through uh, the innards of the deal. Uh, over here in Westminster, the Parliament met on uh, Wednesday the 30th uh, to ratify the deal, effectively to ratify it by way of domestic legislation, uh, and that's uh, an 80-page bill. Uh, to give effect to this agreement was rammed through both houses of parliament in a single day. It went through the uh, lower house in a matter of five hours. And yes, plenty of people were complaining that they hadn't had uh, any time to uh, look at this thing properly, uh, barely had time to skim through the explanatory memorandum just for the bill itself, let were alone... the DUP among the people complaining? Going through Maybe? the deal. Indeed, they were uh, amongst the people complaining. Um, but a lot of the opposition parties as well. Uh, some of the uh, hardcore Brexiters from the uh, ERG uh, were quite enthusiastic for the bill. They had done their own uh, internal scrutiny, being a research group, you'd expect them to uh, do a bit of research, really. Uh, they'd gone through and the doyen of their group, uh, Sir Bill Cash, gave it the thumbs up, uh, apart from uh, Northern Ireland and Fish. 
Uh, but uh, the rest of it, he said, it was fine. But these two areas, are, he said, are going to come back to haunt the government. I also thought it was interesting that he uh, singled out for praise Oliver Lewis, the uh, deputy to um, David Frost, and uh, also Suella Braverman, the Attorney General, and her advisers, as he put it. So uh, there was a lot of legal work being done behind the scenes uh, that a lawyer like uh, Sir Bill Cash uh, was uh, very keen uh, to single out uh, for praise. But yeah, the bill did get through, and so the uh, UK Parliament have effectively ratified uh, that uh, agreement. Now, this week, they've begun the process of actually starting to look at what it is that they've actually ratified. And so we've had a first meeting of this future relationship of the EU committee to uh, start picking its way uh, through this uh, monstrous agreement to see uh, what indeed uh, they've signed up to, what indeed has been put into British law uh, in that uh, very short uh, legislative session that took place on the 30th. A pretty lively exchanges uh, in Parliament, on, on in the parliamentary committees, should I say, on what the contents of this deal mean, particularly what they mean for Northern Ireland. Yeah, that, that's, that's right. There was a hearing by the Northern Ireland Committee uh, on Wednesday and you had uh, Aidan Connolly from the Northern Ireland Retail Consortium and Seamus Lahenny from, the, from Freight, Northern Ireland uh, and Victor Chestnut who we've quoted all these gentlemen who have done amazing work over the past four years on on trying to explain the business position vis-a-vis uh, -vis the protocol uh, but they they were basically outlining a litany of problems in the early days of the protocol uh, basically blaming mostly the government for just the lack of communication, the fact that a lot of this was not fully spelled out until the dying days of December, um, you know, little or no training done by companies because they didn't know what they were training for. Uh, one freight operator had to go onto YouTube to look at a video as to how uh, you would do pre-notification for the EU's food traceability system, which is called Traces. Uh, so any food coming in from Great Britain into Northern Ireland has to be pre-notified uh, to the Traces system. And a lot of people simply didn't know how to do that. And because the, the chain of command starts with companies in Great Britain who are exporting the food to Northern Ireland, no, very few of them seem to have prepared themselves for what they had to do to get the produce over the Irish Sea into Belfast and Larne. Uh, and as a result, you had uh, trucks being held up in uh, depots in Great Britain. They weren't even going to Carn Ryan or, or Haysham uh, at all because they knew they wouldn't get on the ferry because they didn't have the pre-notification done for traces. They didn't, you know, because the... Um, because the free trade agreement had been done, people thought, oh, well, that means there's no customs liabilities or formalities. But in fact, even though you're not paying tariffs, you still have to do the customs declaration. Um, there there were further problems uh, when it comes to uh, f food and phytosanitary, sanitary and phytosanitary checks. Yes, there's a grace period of between three months and six, six months, depending on the products coming in. But that doesn't get you off the hook for everything. You still need to make that pre-notification to traces. Uh, you, you may not need an export health certificate that's signed off by a vet and that's paid for, but you still need to do all these other things. So you had this litany of problems. Um, Victor Chestnut from the Ulster Farmers Union was saying that 
you know, because of the livestock sector in Northern Ireland, because it's so heavily dependent on foreign grain and cereals um, that they would either normally get from the UK or from Ukraine. Um, suddenly they were discovering that the cereals that come from Ukraine are part of an EU quota, uh, trade quota. And with the UK out of that trade quota, then um, suddenly they were not able to get uh, enough uh, grain for livestock feed uh, or it was going to be hit with uh, tariffs. So, you know, this is just in the first five days of the protocol. And... Uh, straight away, Ian Paisley MP, the DUP MP, said, let's just uh, trigger Article 16 of the protocol and have the protocol removed uh, because this is uh, a serious disruption to trade. And he was claiming that Article 16 of the protocol means that you can have, you can more or less unilaterally ditch the protocol. It doesn't say anything of, of the sort. It means you can take safeguard measures, but they have to be approved by both sides and they have to be only if there are extreme environmental, societal and economic consequences. And uh, Simon Hoare, who's the chair of the committee, said it would be slightly eccentric to try and have Article 16 triggered uh, a few days into the protocol. Right. But but this, um, eccentric or not, eccentric this has indeed. now been taken up by Arlene Foster, who said that she's going to be talking to Michael Gove, um, the UK cabinet secretary, uh, sorry, cabinet office minister, uh, to look at whether or when you could start triggering Article 16 to uh, somehow stop the protocol in its tracks. So this is, I think, an indication of how difficult this is all going to be. Sean, for all of that disruption, I was listening to Grant Shapps, the UK's transport secretary, on the BBC's. Re- BBC Radio 4's Today programme earlier, he sounded remarkably relaxed. There was an air of nothing to see here about it. Well, yeah, I mean, this is part of the the approach uh, that the British government has adopted. It's uh, taken the view that, look, there is going to be change. Uh, It is going to be disruptive. There is going to be mess, and people are going to have to confront a whole lot of unpleasant things that they've been putting off confronting. But it just has to be done. You just have to get on with it. And, you know, there's no point in flapping and whinging about it. Just fill in the forms, do the paperwork, process what needs to be processed, make the adjustments that need to be adjusted. Uh, If we can help you, we will. Uh, But, uh, you know, it's your business. Essentially, it's it's for you to get on with it. So they're taking uh, this, uh, you know, some would say pragmatic British approach uh, of saying, look, we just have to get on and crack on, as they say, crack on. There's no point in in, in whining about it. It won't make the the situation go away. Uh, You just have to grow up and and confront the situation and deal with it and and try and deal with it in a in a calm sort of a way. Have a cup of tea, uh, carry on uh, and that is the approach of the government and they've taken a few pragmatic measures such as the one we we've mentioned a, a lot taken last summer which is we're not going to apply customs uh, for the first few months that takes some of the weight off of a the government itself because their customs facilities haven't been built uh, and the computer systems are not uh, stressed or stressed tested properly uh, it also takes the some of the heat off uh, importers, uh, people who are bringing goods into the country. They've got more time now to make the declarations they ha- which they have to make and which everybody knew they were going to have to make uh, as soon as they decided they were leaving uh, the customs union. Um, but, you know, a- another way of looking at this is to just reel back uh, in time uh, anybody over the age of 50, certainly, 
should remember what it used to be like before there was a, a single market operating in Europe uh, and how having uh, custom stickers on a parcel that you sent from England to Ireland uh, was part of normal life or how uh, freight had to queue up and go into the customs posts going from Dublin to Belfast. I remember writing about this 30-odd years ago, one of my very first paid pieces of journalism, uh, about the four hours of uh, that was added to a journey of taking clothes up to Belfast and picking up a, a backload and bringing them back to Dublin. Uh, you could nearly drive it there and back in four hours nowadays. Uh, but the having the customs posts there added an additional four hours. Uh, in those days, there was British Army security as well. That only added 27 minutes to our journey, uh, but it was four hours for the customs. So, you know, these are things that are in the living mem- memory of people. It's not an entirely new thing uh, that people have to, no. to deal with, but they do have to deal with it, right. I'm afraid. And another thing that's, uh, I suppose, what you might call an ancient dividing line is the outcrop, the disputed outcrop that is Rockall. Going back, I suppose, briefly yeah, to the issue yeah. of fisheries, we saw a, a trawler from Donegal being chased off by Scottish fisheries because it had strayed within Rockall's 12-mile limit. And I think it was, it was outside the 12-mile limit. Oh, was it outside uh, the 12-mile yeah, limit? Yeah, and, and they had sort of, I think they boarded the vessel and said, you do realise that you can't you can't go in there. <laughs> so, uh, I yeah, think they the, issued them with a temporary a, fishing permit for the area around Rockall, but not within a 12-mile limit. Yeah. Uh, and then there was, there was a, a, there's an ongoing, you're probably part of the, the chain, uh, thanks to our colleague Vincent Kearney in Belfast, uh, but it, this, it's still running on this Twitter. This is an email, oh, um, a Twitter chain, right, okay. A Twitter chain and uh, all kinds of uh, people weighing in on this one um, with surprising vehemence, considering that it's a, an uninhabited any, and Any uninhabitable members of the Wolf Tones weighing rock. in, maybe? Uh, no, but the song has been up there uh, several times. Uh, haven't seen any uh, of, of the Wolf Tones people, right. but there's there so many people uh, weighing in on this one. But yeah, I mean, uh, all we're waiting for is, is some of the uh, seabirds that uh, occasionally uh, roost on the rock uh, to pitch in their uh, two cents worth. Right. But or, or, you know, or some people music. saying, look, an uninhabited rock can't claim uh, to have a continental shelf and therefore cannot have a 12 mile um, exclusive economic zone around it. Uh, you know, I don't know. It's it's a whole specialist it's, it's one uh, form of, of conflict. It, it seems to be it, it seems to be an issue that whereby um, you know lev- if leverage is needed in a particular area, the Rockhall card is played. I mean, it, it has flared up in uh, yeah. 2017 and, and 2018. I mean, I was speaking to one official about this and said a good exercise for a Scottish journalist would be to to, to do a freedom of information request and ask how much it cost to send a naval vessel. 300 nautical miles out to sea in <laughs> fairly rough winds to block a Donegal trawler. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's it's a it's it's not you know it's not just a kind of a little day trip. It's a it's a major operation. Tony, to there is no price you can put on there. sovereignty. This is true, and this is what Brexit is teaching us every day. Mm, but that you can put a price on fish, so maybe the fish will cost more uh, if they're uh, fished from Rockall waters. Indeed, there's a whole marketing uh, campaign that you could now run. Uh, calling fish rockall mackerel or whatever, rockall herrings, and ha- charging a 20% premium on them uh, and selling them to patriots in both Ireland and Scotland. And who knows, maybe uh, down in England as well. There, that's my contribution to uh, trade uh, in these islands. Um, could I just steer you back a little bit, though, to the um, discussion that was going on in the uh, House of Commons on the actual agreement itself? Uh, because while we've spoken in some uh, detail about some of the elements of the deal, um, 
it, it might be worth just uh, stepping back a little bit uh, and looking at the overall shape of it, because I was uh, intrigued by um, Catherine Barnard, uh, Professor of EU Law at uh, Cambridge, who was uh, in uh, the House of Commons Committee uh, during the... Well, she wasn't in, obviously. She was uh, virtually uh, appearing at it uh, during the week. Uh, but I was delighted that a, a professor of EU law of great eminence... An expert. They haven't tired say, of experts. Well, not on that committee, they haven't. But here's a nice quote from her. It is a very difficult read from something as basic as the numbering not always being consistent or continuous to the vast number of cross-references and exemptions. This is fantastic news for hacks and nerds and, and uh, bluffers like us uh, because you've got a, an actual expert saying this treaty uh, ain't easy to read, folks. And she goes on, it has a slightly Alice in Wonderland quality about it in that nothing appears quite as it first looks. You'll see statements that the dispute resolution mechanism doesn't apply, but if you plough on to get to the end, you discover that chunks of the dispute resolution mechanism are, in fact, incorporated by reference. And I think that should be a, a warning to all of us uh, uh, coming down the road that we're going to see all kinds of people jumping up saying the treaty says this that and the other and uh, yeah i mean this, this, like with this all was, of these uh, things say hang on hang on let's go back and have a look at this one yeah. carefully i always compare eu treaties to microsoft software in that there's always at least three different ways of executing a particular command uh, to get what you want out of that bit of software and there's usually three different ways uh, in which you have to look at an eu treaty because there's always one bit is connected to something else and something else taking out one line or exactly one yeah there's everything yeah everything will refer back to a particular eu directive so this was the same in the withdrawal agreement especially the northern ireland protocol because in like why would you say northern ireland shall be subject to the rules of the single market uh in perpetuity uh when you can say uh, article 6 uh, you know notwithstanding article 5 7 uh, means that regulation 15 b 2003 will apply to the following uh, items in the annex, in annex 4 so everything is kind of shrouded in signposting that will eventually lead you to uh, what the reality of the treaty means, but it won't spell it out in bold. Um, and that's very deliberate, and I, I'm sure it's the same for uh, for this treaty because, uh, of course, the EU had to make sure that there was no reference to the European Court of Justice or uh, any sense of dynamic alignment. So if, if, if there are areas where the UK is having to stay fairly close to EU regulations and there's a whole rebalancing mechanism in there under the level playing fields then it's more likely going to be uh, slightly codified and and hidden right and obscured uh, rather than spelt out in bold two two things points I, I i would like to draw attention to for again from professor barnard's uh, testimony one on on to follow on from what Tony was saying, she was saying, um, I have a nagging voice in the back of my head that's saying that the EU has got very much what it wanted out of this deal and concessions will have to be made by the UK if it wants to have any improvements. This is in the, the context of all of the experts who were testifying this week said it's, it's a kind of a foundational document, a foundation stone on which the rest of the future relationship is going to be built as time goes on and other elements are added on to this uh, fundamental uh, text uh, that now exists uh, but 
they all seemed to be in agreement that it would be the UK that was going to have to face difficulties in making decisions, particularly on some of its red line issues like freedom of movement, uh, in, in order to get any more uh, well, concessions, I guess, out of the EU. But also, I, I thought this point from um, Professor Barnard was, was interesting uh, because she said, I think the deal is actually very unstable. And uh, she says that because there are so many ways in which this agreement can be brought to an end by either party. Uh, I mean, you've got extreme ways such as non-compliance with human rights or weapons of mass destruction, things that are you know highly unlikely, but also because uh, the... Uh, agreement can be terminated on uh, one year's notice and that was something that the Brexiters were very keen to have in the agreement because they don't want to be tied in forever and ever and also the deal is subject to a review in five years time and you've got this vote um, in Northern Ireland uh, in four years time uh, as well so she's concerned about the actual stability of this deal right, uh, so which a bit is an interesting point to make a bit early to call time on the podcast then is it? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> totally. I'll have a review Maybe. on when we have the podcast again. Who said there's no such thing as a job for life? You're in it right now. Tony, <laughs> you were you you had high hopes of being deprogrammed, I'm sure, at some point from the Brexit Republic Mooney cult that you've had to join. Yeah, well, I, I'd, I'd hoped that the sort of matrix, sort of red pill or blue pill or whichever one I took uh, was going to start wearing off after four and a half years. But um, I, I think the... Uh, I think the after effects will linger in my veins and in my cortex, uh, my my neural system uh, for some time to come, uh, because I think we will be we will be analysing the deal for a while. And you know, e- having spent the last hour or so just talking about the uh, already the immediate real world effects of Brexit in the unforeseen ways, perhaps, or the ways that were a bit overlooked or people were in denial about. I mean, th- this is all going to get a lot more real for people. And yeah, I mean, th- there's there's a whole superstructure around the treaty involving the Joint Partnership Council, which is how both sides are going to implement the treaty. And it is going to have something like 30 subcommittees on things like how the, the conformity assessment for the safety of goods um, you know, fi- we've got the the whole fisheries uh, issue, which is going to be highly kind of managed and highly controversial for a long time. We've got a promise of ongoing cooperation on uh, food safety and animal health, but a clear indication from the UK that they are going to diverge from the EU's food okay. safety rules uh, for whatever reason. So, I mean, there's an awful lot of... I mean, again, as we've said before... Geography means that this relationship will just have to be managed in an ad hoc way, you know, beyond the constraints of the treaty. Both sides are going to be having to live with each other for decades and generations to come. And we are going to have to find ways to tweak things here and improve things there. Uh, And, you know, it is it it does have the potential to be unstable and, you know, fairly uh, fraught uh, over the years. Right. Well, we leave the last word to Michael Corleone. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. That's it for me, Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor here in Dublin. For me, Sean Whelan, our London correspondent in London. And for me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening.